Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back, friends, to another Waypoint article read. I'm Rob Zachney, and today we've got D.L. Asena's review of Shadow of the Tomb Raider, a game which attempts to both rehabilitate the idea of Lara Croft as a character, redefine her mission as a hero, and transform Tomb Raider into a franchise that can coexist with more progressive anti-colonial attitudes. It's a tall order, and here's Dia to let you know how it turned out in her review. Shadow of the Tomb Raider tries, but fails, to tackle its own colonialism. I guess the title kind of gives the game away there. Uh, anyway, stick around for a long conversation after the article with plenty of spoilers about the plot of Shadow of the Tomb Raider uh, once Dia wraps up a read here. Every day it encroaches. Paititi will not survive its invasion. Everything we are will be taken or destroyed. It's not a line of dialogue I expected from a Tomb Raider game, but deep into the narrative of Shadow of the Tomb Raider, it's a position passionately argued by one of the main characters. They're talking about the outside world, about colonialism, and though this character never says it directly, they are talking about Lara Croft. This Friday... When Shadow of the Tomb Raider launches on PC, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One, players will once again take up the mantle of intrepid British heiress and archaeologist. It's, hopefully, the final act in the rebooted origin story of Lara Croft, played by Camilla Luddington, this time developed by Idas Montreal in conjunction with Crystal Dynamics. The basic setup is this. Lara is chasing down Trinity, a Dan Brown-like organization hell-bent on controlling the world through the acquisition of mystical artifacts to the confabulation of what a town on the Mexican island of Cozumel should look like. Here, Lara breaks into a tomb before Trinity can, steals a ceremonial dagger, and triggers a giant tsunami that obliterates the town and portends the end of the world. Even Dr. Dominguez, played by Carlos Leal, the leader of Trinity and primary villain, underestimates just how reckless Lara is, saying, It never occurred to me that you would just take it. Destruction seems to emanate around Lara, and because this is the third title in a AAA franchise, the scale of disaster has escalated dramatically. From the destruction of caves and temples to the flooding of a city to exploding an oil refinery, Shadow is bigger and more bombastic in every way. At some points, Shadow seems like it wants players to ponder Lara's relationship to this destruction. Is she the cause of it? The solution? Should she be involved at all? An early voice for these questions is Lara's Polynesian sidekick, Jonah Maeva, played by Earl Balin, whose indigeneity is expressed the way 
exotic sidekicks were in mid-century adventure films. He's big and strong and frequently senses evil. After one of Shadow's many frenetic, running-jumping, catastrophe set-piece sequences where Lara platforms her way to safety as the town she was staying in is literally wiped off the map, Jonas says to her, You don't know that you caused all this, Lara. Not everything is about you. Except, Jonah's wrong. It's a line of dialogue that sets up one of the four themes the narrative hopes to wrestle with, but it falters. Regardless of what these opening moments suggest, and despite the story team's interest in prodding at the colonialist underpinning of making a series called Tomb Raider in the first place, everything in this world is very much about Lara. Midway through the game, Lara and Jonah arrive at the hidden city of Paititi, which marketing materials remind us is the largest hub in any Tomb Raider game. But Paititi is less a vivacious city showcasing the lives of uncontacted indigenous peoples and more a digital Epcot Center attraction, built especially for Lara to peruse at her leisure. You'll overhear looping conversations and watch as fishermen, children, and women pounding corn into flour cycle through their animations in this terrace city of thatched roof cottages and ancient hidden temples. And of course, in Paititi and its surroundings, there are plenty of things for Lara to collect. Lara loves collecting. There are 336 collectibles, and I imagine the DLC's seven new challenge tombs will only add more. While the game tries to skew them largely to items pertaining to explorers and conquistadors, there's literally an artifact tab called Conquerors. I'm not kidding. It's a decision that was made. Lara still manages to steal plenty of indigenous souvenirs along her way. But Lara loves collecting indigenous people, too. Adding supporting characters to her orbit the way European explorers brought brown folks into their own personal legends of conquest. At first... Lara finds pushback from some of these people. Abby, played by Erica Soto, an indigenous Peruana mechanic, balks at Lara's hunt for Maya ruins, since the Maya Empire never extended this far south. Unaratu, played by Patricia Velasquez, the deposed queen of Paititi, is skeptical of Lara's presence in her territory. But Shadow is committed to aligning the locals to Lara's perspective, and so, of course... Lara throws Abby's ancestral knowledge back in her face and convinces Unaratu with a brief dialogue, winning over her, her young son, and their trusted military advisor. Unaratu might be the queen of Paititi, but the city and its inhabitants are Lara's, and yours too. Don't get me wrong, Paititi and the rest of Shadow South America does look incredibly expensive. It's clear that a great deal of time, effort, and yes, even research and consultation went into crafting it. As with Cozumel and Kuak Yaku before it, I got goosebumps seeing a multitude of brown faces peering out from my television, even if incidental NPCs in this game have only one facial expression. This is the first time I can recall this many brown folks in a video game speaking Spanish without being cartel members. In Paititi, I walked through market stalls and past villagers just living. They speak, teach, conduct business, and even gossip in Yucatec and Quechua. There's corn. Real corn. And brightly colored indigenous art and clothing. 
I spent hours just wandering the city, amazed at something I never thought I'd see in a AAA game. I took over 900 photographs. Shadow's creators seem poised to finally include indigenous peoples in a game without the grossness of western imperialist tropes of savagery. But even here in this paradise, cliché adventure stories' ideals of the exotic and savage other permeate. Deep below Paititi is an old tomb, the Sacrificial Pit. One of the darkest zones in the game, it's here the game introduces the staple of jungle adventure, ritual human sacrifice. The game gestures at it before in a mostly non-committal way, but in this blood temple, it indulges in this trope repulsively. Lara must crawl through hundreds of decomposing bodies, channel rivers of oil and blood to open passageways. It's the Temple of Doom in Overdrive. Human sacrifice was practiced by many indigenous peoples of pre-Columbian South America. Human sacrifice was also practiced all over the world for millennia. No matter how historically accurate the practice was, its deployment in this game and across media depicting these particular peoples becomes shorthand for showing how violent, uncivilized, and truly savage they are. It's used no differently here, and locating it within the majestic city of Paititi only serves to condemn even these good brown people as only slightly removed from the depravity of their ancestors and the game's bad brown people. In the end, what precious moments of indigeneity the game could offer were stolen from me. This isn't a game about, by, or for indigenous peoples. It's all about Lara. And Lara is an outsider. A tomb raider. Every brown face in this game exists to help her or die. Racing through Cozumel, players are treated to the bodies of Mexicans floating dead in water, a young boy screaming for his mother as he slips from a wall and falls to his death on flaming rubble. Lara's pilot, Miguel, is another early brown character who dies, horribly. There's even two whole factions of antagonistic indigenous people that Lara gets to kill. And boy howdy, that skinny white girl can kill in this game. As the press cycle ramped up for Shadow of the Tomb Raider, I wondered, as I often do, how far off the mark did the marketing team stray? Given the members of development team were using phrases like contact-resistant cultures and emphasizing their work with consultants, would this be the Tomb Raider where I was surprised by the developers finally making strides to addressing the issues of colonial violence in a franchise called fucking Tomb Raider? As it turns out, the marketing team knew exactly what this game was all about. The last game in the franchise, Rise of the Tomb Raider, made heavy use of Lara's arsenal, adding skills and crafting to make her a more efficient combatant. But it pales in comparison to the explosive shadow of destruction Lara has become in this new entry. I'm conflicted by the way Shadow of the Tomb Raider creates a more personal connection to Lara and her violence. This isn't the jingoistic, cartoonish, depersonalized violence of a Tom Clancy game. Players inhabit Lara, and her brutality, which is more often directed at brown folks. That left me with a conflict I couldn't compartmentalize, 
even as I enjoyed the mechanics of slaughter. Lara's skill tree now includes the option to craft arrows from neurotoxins extracted from frogs and beetles. When fired at an enemy, they'll lose control and turn on their allies before dying of suffocation. Given the density of enemy patrols in certain sections, it's possible to tag every enemy in an area and hide in a tree as they blast away at each other. Speaking of trees, Lara can also use her tethering abilities to shoot an enemy with a roped arrow, jump down from the tree, and hoist them into the air. Initially, she'll loop the other end of the rope around their necks and hang the bodies, but later she can hide them from enemies in the branches, though the joy in watching a trinity guard stumbling on a regular old body hanging from a tree and screaming, what the fuck, is undeniable. She can even transform her kills into beeping corpse bombs. All of which is to say, the initial comparisons of Lara Croft going Predator weren't wrong. But as much fun as the game has made slaughtering from stealth, the problem is that stealth mechanics are only as good as the gameplay when stealth is broken. And openly skirmishing in Tomb Raider doesn't feel great. The same quality of animation that gives Lara's exploration movements a deliberate fluidity makes her feel unresponsive in the heat of battle. The buttons are flush with options, but it wasn't until the end of the game I felt even competent at basic combat tasks like quickly cycling weaponry. Everything she does takes time, and while she has the option to choose between any number of rifles, shotguns, bows, and pistols, None of them feel differentiated within their class in the slightest. As a whole, it highlights however comfortable with killing Lara has become. She's not a soldier. She can be moved behind objects, but she can't properly take cover, vault, or lean out. Re-entering stealth is tedious. Enemies swarm fast, and Lara, both in terms of control and animation, just isn't responsive enough. Also, it turns out that the difficulty options for combat just jack up enemy health, from burly guys to walking tanks, and how perceptive they are, from sharper than you'd expect to absolutely inhuman, which is about the most boring thing possible. And then there are the arena boss battles, thankfully few in number, but made tedious because Lara's only real recourse in these moments is dodging, circling around, and trying to fire off with whatever weapon she has before repeating the process. Lara needs the shadows. When that isn't an option, the fantasy breaks down. When you're not turning Trinity soldiers, cultists, or random jungle animals into mincemeat, you're probably in or on your way to a tomb. And if you, like me, miss tombs in Rise, you're in luck. This game sure does have a lot of ruins for you to explore. Both the main story tombs and the challenge tombs are full of deadly traps, gimmicky puzzles, and a wide variety of platforms to leap off, cling to, and plummet to your death from. Besides the treasures you'll pick up, you'll also find plenty of big stone steelies to learn languages from inside the tomb, and a few scattered throughout the world. This time you can learn Mom, a Maya language, Yucatec, also Maya, and Quechua, Inca. And as in Rise, upgrading Lara's linguistic abilities allows her to read monoliths that will point her to more collectibles and tombs to explore. Lara's got some new skills, which while dangerously overloading the buttons of a PS4 controller, 
make for new exploration and traversal challenges. In some tombs, Lara will have to use new gear to do overhead climbing, while in others, she'll make use of her bow and arrow to shoot tethered arrows, creating zip lines or operating massive ancient machinery. And while the tombs themselves tend to present a good variety of challenge, and the puzzles and design can be fun, Shadow of the Tomb Raider doesn't offer any freedom in platforming or puzzle solving. There's always one path, one right answer, and of course, it's always expressly tailored to Lara's skill sets. Again, for all the games gesturing at the world being bigger than her, and for the dangers of being a self-centered outsider, Shadow really is all about Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. You'll never get in over your head, find yourself without the tool or skill needed, nor be allowed to come up with a solution of your own to get around those obstacles. Lara is more likely to die repeatedly from leaping with the wrong tool out, or in the wrong direction by mistake, or from simply letting go of a wall instead of clinging to it, than players attempting to do some unanticipated crypt parkour. If it feels like nearly every paragraph of this review is punctuated, it's cool, but that's because so much of this game plays out exactly that way. Shadow's stealth action is cool, but once it turns into a gunfight, it's marred by clumsy handling. The story's premise of Lara as outsider is cool, but it only half-heartedly attempts to do anything meaningful. It's cool that there are indigenous peoples in this game, but everything about them is subordinate to Lara Croft. This isn't a game that creates space for its indigenous characters as anything other than props, people who desperately need help, people to be corrected to show how Lara is the smartest person in the room. In planning the final showdown, Jonah presents one tactical option, and its downsides. Unaratu's lieutenant presents another similarly. But it's Lara who realizes they can do both, thanks to her. Her compatriots are left to marvel at her bravery and tactical genius as though they never would have thought of this on their own. Even when they are allowed a semblance of righteous action, it's in service of Lara's ultimate quest, which just happens to align with the things the good brown people need in the moment. Unuratu is depicted as noble, strong, a leader. She's given moments of heroic action, but she's not a hero. There can't be room for her in that role. She can't save her people. She needs Lara for that. This is Lara's fantasy. She's the hero, and the game does little, if anything, to puncture that. Long before I sat down to play Shadow of the Tomb Raider, I was skeptical. But when I found out Jill Murray was tapped as lead writer, I remembered how impressed I was by Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, which set players as the leader of a slave rebellion in the Caribbean. Hearing that the developers had added contact-resistant peoples to their vocabulary, that this game would feature an immersive language option where Spanish, Quechua, and Yucatec were spoken by NPCs, and Lara Croft would finally have to wrestle with her actions, it gave me hope. Not much but a glimmer. I wrote down two questions before I launched Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Does this game accomplish its goals? 
Does the world need another Tomb Raider? I don't think either answer is yes. Beyond concluding this exhausting three games over five years origin story for a character whose original origin story was actually way cooler and accomplished in the single page of the instruction manual, OG Laura was disowned by her family and wrote books and articles about her adventures to fund her thrill-seeking lifestyle. This game falls well short of its intent. Lara's story of personal responsibility is flat. There's never any real stakes for her. She doesn't have to give up anything. And even if her actions are destructive, she's always proven right. And while the combat and exploration can be fun, it never achieves more than a very athletic Epcot Center attraction. Even the photo mode, yeah, it has one, falters because Lara Croft's South America is populated by people who are frozen in place, doomed to never leave the cycle of the one animation or conversation they're given. You can spend hours photographing this world, and I did, but you'll end up with the same staged photographs as everyone else. A lovely, generic, National Geographic expose about Dia de los Muertos, or an uncontacted tribe in the Andes. And honestly, I'm sure I have those issues in a box somewhere. Shadow of the Tomb Raider doesn't want Lara to fail. It's her fantasy. And because of that, it doesn't allow players the freedom to be expressive. The game's narrative gestures at wanting players to learn a lesson about colonialism, but even when it manages to make some small point, it's undercut by the very mechanics that make up 90% of the game. Even in Paititi, Lara can't keep her hands to herself. And when she takes, she does so with an almost malicious abandon. I've always joked that the Tomb Raiders were better games than Uncharted, because at least they're honest about what they are. But if I'm honest, Uncharted The Lost Legacy, a game with significant problems, actually achieves more solid commentary on colonialism, sovereignty, personal responsibility. In fact, it's hard not to think of other games that put this one in their shadows. Assassin's Creed Origins gave us a world full of vitality and possibility, and a better means to record it. Hitman let us be unbelievably expressive in how we navigated a space and killed a lot of people. Breath of the Wild showed us the breadth of what an open world could feel like. There are just so many other games doing the things Shadow of the Tomb Raider tries to do, but better. Buried deep inside this game, there's a better one. There's an indigenous queen deposed during a struggle for ascension, a society that's purposely hidden itself away from a world built on colonialism. The queen is a powerful warrior in her own right, nimble and wise. She has choices she has to make, decisions about actions and consequences for herself, her heir, and her people. There are important cultural and religious artifacts she has to acquire to ensure the future of her nation, long lost and buried in her people's history. But that isn't Tomb Raider, and it could never be. There's a moment, an hour or two, in the shadow of the Tomb Raider, 
where Lara flashes back to her childhood. The garden of the Croft Manor is exactly the stereotype of an aristocratic English yard, but with a twist. In a huge sandbox, a wooden play structure has been erected, complete with rope bridges, a slide, walls to scale, platforms to jump across, even a weight-activated elevated puzzle, complete with a treasure for solving it. In this memory, a preteen Lara narrates her fantasy of being an adventurer as players guide her through much of the same actions in the rest of the game. There are even childish drawings chalked onto the walls of the playset and in-game collectibles. And while an after-credits sequence tries quickly to quell Lara's more destructive impulses and instruct against the violence of colonialism, anything it manages is far too little and much too late. No matter how much Lara changes in the course of this adventure, she's still an instrument of hegemony. This world remains a constructed fantasy, one designed specifically for her. Tomb Raider is, and will always be, Lara Croft's playground. And as uninteresting and fundamentally regressive as Lara's tale is, that's the only story this franchise can tell. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, Dia, the instant you brought up that flashback in Shadow of the Tomb Raider to Lara's, uh, like, Tomb Raider playset in a long-ago sandbox back in England, uh, my thoughts, maybe the pump had been a little bit primed just considering the entire, the entire arc of the article, but my thoughts flew straight to Kipling, actually, and have done with Childish Days, the lightly proffered Laurel. Like, it flew straight to White Man's Burden, in a way, and, like, a way, like... In a in a weird sense, the it feels like the white savior narrative is the way for uh, a character like Lara to have her cake and eat it too in in the modern world. But it still feels very much as mm, a kind of uh, imperialism by another way, by another name, uh, and the way it's sort of contextualized there with, well, Lars always just wanted to fuck around with this shit. So how many, like how many lessons can she have learned? Uh, that's, that's kind of the impression I got of, of the, the overall arc of this game. Well, I mean, absolutely. Like, um, I mean, when I got to that scene, I was just like, Oh, okay. You're kind of directly acknowledging this. Where are you going to go with it? And, um then at the end let's just we'll just get right to it um laura's ultimate lesson is that you know these cultures aren't for taking from therefore quote being a protector of okay and so it like really is just like okay you 
you looped right back around into just a new brand of colonialism. Um, and it's, it's, it's telling because like the shot pans through Laura's study at the end. And she's like talking about like, you know, I realize that these cultures of the world aren't, you know, for, for, for taking from, for, for, you know, like seeking out their secrets. And as it's doing that, it's panning through like these, these like, displays these curio closets of shit that Laura's stolen from her previous two games and, and this which one. she's now protecting in her yes. study in her, in her study on her manor in England yes um, the, the track writing denotes respect and reverence I mean that is <clears throat> it's it's kind of this it's because it's still kind of a condescending uh, fantasy in a lot of ways, and this is this was the thing that startled me so much, and I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about how this develops over the course of the game because I started playing this, uh, you know, a couple hours before we, we we recorded, and again because I'd already read this review, like a hundred percent, my impressions were going to be colored, but I was kind of taken aback by how much I was like finding myself disliking Laura in a lot of ways. Like, and I couldn't figure out, like clearly the game is aware that she's a problematic hero and there's a lot of things she's doing that are, may not be heroic at all. And her attitudes may not be heroic, but I couldn't quite work out. Like did crystal dynamics realize how off putting this portrayal was at the start? Like the impression I have of, of Laura at the start of this game is awful. Like even at moments when she is is supposedly like learning things, she still kind of doesn't. Uh, like I was really startled by that opening sequence where um, uh, that first town is it Cozumel. Yeah, yeah, Cozumel. Yeah, Cozumel. Um, I was really taken aback by her confrontation with Jonah, and it kind of sounds like. Jonah's trying to call her on her shit, but not really. It's it's oh it's a it's a weird thing where she's accepting responsibility, but for the wrong thing, and is still putting herself in whatever she wants to do at the center of everything. It's it's this weird this weird idea of like, yes, I know I screwed up, but I'm also the only one who can fix this. So let's everyone just move on and get with my new plan, fixing my screw up. Because I've learned my lesson now. And that's kind of the... That's the foot that Shadow of the Tomb Raider seems to get off on. And I'm curious, like... Does it... Does it know that? Is Does it fix it? There's there's a scene before that. Um, uh, I think it's well... It's, in, it's actually... It's just in the very opening tutorial dungeon where... Or tomb. <laughs> um, where Lara is... Kind of aggressively photographing that the one kind of uh, sculpture with the Mayan markings on it, and she's just shutterbugging away, and she steps on a brick that's got a booby trap because she's not paying attention, and the tomb blows up. And for me, like I'm like that was kind of like I'm like okay, this you you have deliberately set Laura up here as being unaware of her own destruction. And then the next big set piece is Laura being made aware of her destructive capacity. 
but when when she's when she's told like you know there are people that we can help right now and i think that's exactly jonah's line it's like no there are people here that need help not like mystical in the future bullshit right here right now in the present and laura's like yeah but i did this thing and it's gonna be the end of the world which of course it would be if you know, like she's right. It is the end of the world if she doesn't go and stop Trinity. Blah 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 blah. But the game puts. It feels like it puts more of an emphasis on Laura's personal responsibility to what interests her. You know, it's mm-hmm. like ultimately Laura wants to go raid that fucking tomb. <laughs> Laura wants to get the box of Ishel. Laura wants to stick it to the man. Like. Fixing her screw up is kind of you know secondary. Really, it's it's such a weird thing. That entire opening sequence is really strange, and this is why. Like, I'm definitely going to like belabor this a little bit because hey, it's the part of the game I played, so it's it's the common term of reference (laughs) we have for this game right now. Uh, That and like, holy shit, there's a lot of rebar impalement uh, in the opening after this game. But she's a fucking magnet. Oh my god, God. it's it's just like every every five seconds. Well, it doesn't help that. This is a game that is still very, like, quick time event heavy. And so, like, the sheer number of times I was not aware Control had been returned to me. And just, like, watched Lara sail into some rebar. And I was like, well, the, the director is going to take over in a second. And I was like... No, I had the exact same problem. I kept... And it, and it repeats throughout. It's like, you never know when re- Control has been returned to you. Um, and And so, like, you do, like... It's just like, well, I got swept away in a mudslide. Oh, I, I didn't realize that I was supposed to be holding down square to hold onto this ledge because no one told me that I was supposed to be holding square to hold onto this ledge again. I thought it was still part of the cutscene. And because five minutes earlier, the game just like did stop responding to controls because it was like, no, Lara's going to uh, mantle up this thing, wh- whether you're pressing a button or not. Sorry, yep. that's that's what's happening now. Uh, it's, it's a really unclear thing, but that opening sequence, what really took me back is that Lara comes across, and I, 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 I'm curious whether this is an arc of her evolution as a character throughout this game, but she comes across as a character who doesn't see people. She doesn't care about them in a weird way. Like, there's this sequence where you're sort of stalking the villain, Dominguez, through the city. And we know he's a bad guy. Like, the culmination of his plot is going to be, like, executing local workers he's been working with to, like, sort of cover up what they know but the other weird thing is he talks to people and like chats with people in town and is like engages with kids like he sees people in a weird way he does he don't he does not quite see him as like as completely alien an outside invader as Lara is and it's this weird juxtaposition of even at the moments where like as you say like in that opening sequence Lara realizes, like, oh shit, I am destructive. But even then, it's still in that re- it still is a way for her to reorient toward the direction of she wants to raid that fucking tomb. And she still doesn't really see the people. She sees the abstraction of like, I screwed up and I roughly caused this. But there's this weird inability to identify or engage with the humanity that surrounds her with maybe the exception of Jonah, like that she desperately wants Jonah to re-engage and I guess 
approve her and let her know that things are still cool between them, uh, which is kind of an interesting. Like, it's an interesting dynamic. It's 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 sort of nicely evoked through the animation and the voice acting and, and the writing that's well handled. But I just found myself profoundly put off by like the degree to which Lara seems unable to really relate or process any of the human cost of what's happening around her. And even the villain seems better at that than she is. Oh, I mean, it's, I mean, uh, Dr. Dominguez is absolutely better at processing the human cost. And it's it's interesting because when I was playing through the first part, one of the lines that stuck out to me, just it was just very jarring and very... Because, you know, I went in, um, I knew this is the villain, I knew his story, it was you know, it's in the review guide, and there's a line that I think it's Jonah has where he's been kind of looking into Dominguez. And one of the things he says is he's like, it basically describes him as like a pillar of the community and he's well liked in this town. And then we immediately get that, like, you know, cut with he's killing the local government official who's doing the archaeological dig and like ordering these like executions to cover up what Trinity's been doing. But he's, you know, he cares about the people in this town. He cares about the people of Paititi, which he is, you know, where that's where he's from. That's who he is. He was just happened to be raised in the outside world, which the game never really gets into. But, um, and so he kind of becomes this, he basically, he becomes a trope of like, kind of like the local drug Lord, you know, he's like El Bucho in the Desperado movie where like, Oh, he's responsible for kind of keeping this town like happy and alive, and because he cares about it, he cares about these people. He just also happens to be, you know, have like just a heart of black coal, but it doesn't really sell it because he clearly cares and is like shown caring so much more about people than Lara Croft. Um, and like, there's a moment. Uh, later in the game where he shows up and gets the box from Lara and he says to her about like, basically I had to kill your dad. Um, which the timeline see doesn't really work out there. There's, there's a, so many plot holes in this that just yeah. it requires leaps to just get through. But he's like, I had to kill your dad. And because he wanted to expose Paititi to the world and, um, Quote, he refused to see the potential for destruction in his work. He had to be stopped. Mm. And, 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 and everything I love, everything I fought for, my world would have been destroyed. And then Lara's like, well, I was a nine-year-old girl and I needed my dad. And so it's just kind of, it really does, like, it's, it's, it's not until, like, the final act of the game that Lara starts to even come around to, Oh, there are people that make up these, you know, catastrophic disasters that I cause. It's not just like, Oh, I blew up a tomb, whatever. No one knew it was there anyway. Um, but even then she's really just like focused on like her goals and she can't see the individual experiences of the people around her. You know, there's one scene, the only one she really, the only person she cares about is Jonah. Her one big breakdown moment is when she thinks Jonah's dead. 
and then she sobs, and then well, she sobs when he realize when she realizes he's alive. Yeah, I don't like. I'm curious. I, I I am so curious if this is an intentional choice in the characterization of Lara to make her this kind of unable to relate to people. Like in like you know in in a in a way it reminds me of um the Tom Cruise character in Collateral. Uh, that that point where that, that that point where Jamie Foxx's cab driver is like, there's just there's just something wrong with you, man. Like you don't you don't see people. You know, there's there's some, like where your where your heart is supposed to be. There's just there's just nothing. There, there's there's no humanity there. And I'm curious if this is in that same vein. But I'm not. I don't. I, in what I have seen, I do not see the sort of self awareness of the or the the. Or the game addressing that head on. What I see is the game t- kind of trying to. I, I think Tomb Raider has this problem. Certainly, this this more this new trilogy. Of in the end, we reluctantly have decided it's probably the best if we stop raiding so many goddamn tombs. And like that's perhaps perhaps we should uh, raid tombs a bit less, and by extension plunder other cultures, run roughshod over people's history. Maybe we should do that a little bit less. But this is the name of the game. Like, literally, it is, like, we still want to go have these adventures. We still want to do all of this. And Lara's arc in this game seems like a pure expression of that. It's like, well, okay, yes. We're going to nod towards some self-awareness that this is bad. But then we also need to, in the same breath, set up a justification that gives her sort of a moral green light and gives you, the, the player, by extension, a moral green light for whatever you're going to do next, which is going to be more tomb raiding, right? And so you have this thing where, where Dominguez at the start is like, it's got, you, you describe that moment so wonderfully in, in your article and I enjoyed it so much watching it happen live, but the part where he's just sort of marveling at the dagger and he's like, it never occurred to me. You just take it. <laughs> like it's, it's just unfathomable to him. Um, I, go on. I, I, I really do want to shout out the like performances uh, for Dominguez particularly. Um, and also like Unaratu, um, like the two of them, this is so much a more interesting game if it's just the two of them. I swear to God, like it's it's so funny because it's almost like you know, like you know, like Die Hard Two wasn't a Die Hard movie, but then they were just like, we can just change yeah. this up and make it a Die Hard movie, and it's like it feels like Tomb Raider was supposed to be some unspecified, you know, indigenous action platformer that like involved these two characters. And there, someone was like, "Well, no, we have to shove Laura Croft in here because she feels so grafted on to the story of these these two indigenous, you know, rulers just vying for how they see the future of their people, and their performances are so good. Every every like, every line Dominguez uh, voice actor delivers, Carlos Leal." Um, like he sells it. He sells it so well, and it's like I'm sitting there. And I'm like, you are, you're, you're like kind of 
my point of view character for this world. Mm-hmm. Like this, you're the one that I'm like, I am empathizing and understanding you. And Lara is just this fucking void of just selfish, like blaseness. It's, um, it's such a strange thing. Cause when she's like, it's all my fault. I have to stop them. They caused this. Basically that's how she ends this. And it's like, no dude, like they knew not to take the dagger by itself. Like, literally, Dominguez is like, it's it's this weird thing of Dominguez does, and it, I'm sure more comes across through over the course of the game, Dominguez clearly has sort of a evil genius plot, like, in mind. Like, literally, he starts out by saying, like, I'm going to harness the power of creation to remake the world into a paradise without suffering and pain. Uh, which... You know, swinging for the fences probably not going to end well, uh, but it's it's definitely it's definitely a it's definitely an angle uh, to take. It's a goal. It's good to have goals. Um, <laughs> but he knows. But he he knows roughly at least the forces he's dealing with and the tools he's using to bring it about. And Laura like profoundly does not. And yeah. so he's like, "Oh man, you've long, you've triggered the apocalypse." And now I have to go fix this. Like, you've just ended the world. I think I can go fix this. See you around. I'm going to go try to stop the apocalypse. And Lars' immediate response is like, only I can stop the apocalypse. Yes, I caused the apocalypse by screwing up and not knowing that the two pieces went together. But I'm also the only person who can fix this. Even though there's, like, people who do know about this currently working on the problem. It's this. It's this weird thing of, like... Um, and that's like of Dominguez does feel like the character that you're that's maybe easier to empathize with as sort of a a tragic hero, right? And Lara rather less so. I mean, D- Dominguez is he's the more chill Magua. Yes, like uh, yes. he he has seen what colonialism has done to the rest of South America. Like, he knows. He knows what this looks like. He knows what Laura Croft represents. He knows all of this, and he understands it implicitly. You know, like, there's a question of how was he raised in the outside world? Like, it's not answered by the game, but it's just like, well, what? Was was he picked up and just taken off by Trinity, like, long ago? Like, what's, what's his deal? Um... You know, is he was he like a transracial adoptee? Like I don't know, but like Unaratu's like he was raised by outsiders, so so he has he has seen firsthand what happens to people like him, and so it's really easy to kind of understand. Like, okay, yeah, he understands what he's dealing with here, and he knows what's going to happen when he remakes the world. You know per his desires and he's accepted that Lara Croft hasn't accepted any of the destruction that she's going to wield. Like, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't accept the consequences of her actions. She just knows, Oh, well, I guess I fucked up again. Whereas like, Dominguez is like, look mad at me for some reason. Yeah. Like, but Dominguez is like, yeah, I'm probably going to wipe out the rest of the world. And it's just going to be this like weird indigenous paradise where I'm the god king, and yeah, that's that's a problem. You know, it's the same reason like Magua is a problem. You know, like Dominguez's well, heart is twisted. The parenthesis there is it's by colonialism. 
It's not it's not because he's like just some asshole or because he craves power. He just is so fucked up. Well, this is something I wanted to get, uh, get into because the I want to talk a little bit about the Unarata character and a little bit about the – so we're, we're talking about like Last of the Mohicans. If you haven't seen the movie, you should definitely see it. But the movie sort of culminates in the showdown between this character Magua who is a um, – Originally a Huron, but he's, he's been living with the Mohawk for ages to basically go undercover and fuck up the British uh, during the French and Indian War. Uh, but it culminates with him attempting to basically be accepted back into uh, Huron society as sort of a leader. And he basically is making his case to uh, the Huron chief that, like, hey, I've got a plan here. This is This is how we fight back. This is how we resist. This is how we respond to the threat, uh, the existential threat that is opposed to that is opposed to our people and our way of life uh, by the arrival of the colonizers. And the Huron chief's response is basically, we're aware of how, like he, like he says up front, like we have been debating since, since the colonizers showed up, how do we respond to this? What are we supposed to do? What is the right thing to do here? And his verdict is that, Whatever the right thing to do is, it isn't what Magua's proposing, which is basically let's arm ourselves to the teeth and be- beat, the- beat the British and-, and the French at their own game in a lot of ways. And the Huron chief is like, that's not our way. His heart is twisted. He's basically exiled uh, at the end of that speech. And it's one of those things that as time goes by, I identify more and more with, with-, with Magua, frankly. Um, and sort of the argument he's making that if we don't do something radical at this point, the story ends with us getting almost, like effectively wiped out. And so it is time to compromise our, our morals. It is time to com- compromise our society and get vicious and get as cruel as the people we're fighting. And I'm curious if this game digs into that tension, right? That, uh, Dominguez has clearly kind of accepted that worldview. Uh, and I'm curious what the other perspective is here that, that's on offer in the form of Unaratu. I mean, it's, it's almost a one for one. Um, Unaratu, uh, Dominguez, you know, uh, there's a confrontation, um, and, uh, cause Doming- Dominguez, yeah, basically kidnaps Unaratu while she, while Laura and her are liberating her son that was kidnapped because he's the heir apparent to the yeah. uh, Pytidian throne. Um, and the two of them have a conversation, and it's actually it's it's arguably one of the most effective moments in the game, aside from whatever whatever Dominguez shows up and it's just like, what the hell, Laura? Um. Because it is the two of them having the Huron leader and the Magua conversation, but like more as like peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two of them are just kind of circling around each other. And he's just like, look, I've seen the outside. And she's like, yeah, guess what? You come and go. You don't, you don't have roots here. You like treat this as like just something that you think is what you want, but you don't really understand the cost of that. You don't understand the implications for our society. And she makes a decent argument. It's not, or at least you can read into the argument that she puts forth, what is going on in her head there. And 
And but you can also completely sympathize with Dominguez's thing. Like she's right. It's like yeah, okay, you don't have your, you know, yeah, you're from here, but you're also kind of not totally from here. You don't really know the score as well as you think you do, and what we value, um, as implicated by you coming back and just starting to just ritually sacrifice everyone. Though, for all the ritual sacrifice Dominguez's crew does, um, the Pythians seem to love him for it too. <laughs> Okay. There's a whole there, there's a sequence where they're like really excited about the executions and everyone is just gathered around all hype and like, you know, they're like we're ready for blood, you know, we want the blood temple. Um but the game doesn't really give enough time to like there's just there's there's not enough given to the exploring that tension. Um, because that is a tension. That is a thing that, like, every indigenous person I know, like, we talk about. It. It's like, well, do we do the incrementalist thing and, like, ingratiate ourselves to, like, you know, colonists and try and work within their systems? Or do we say, fuck it, burn your systems to the ground? Um, and, like, there's not, there's no clear answer. There's, there's, there's discussions. And, the game gives such little time to Dominguez having that with Unaratu and like that really should be the core of this game. Like this narrative, that is it. It is what do we do to keep ourselves sovereign? And what are we willing to give up to keep ourselves sovereign? Right. And I think one of the crucial through lines of your review is that you and I have talked about this stuff at great length in this in in this discussion because I think it's where interests and inclinations lie. But I think one of the central points of your review is that all these themes, all this uh, all these themes, all these locations, uh, all this cultural sensitivity is still curated for fundamentally a Western colonialist point of view. And not just in the sense that like Lara is a Western colonialist point of view character, but also for like much of the assumed audience that this is never going to be the game that foregrounds the philosophical tension between Dominguez and Unaratu. It's never going to be a game that digs into the tension of being a separate culture within a world overrun by uh, colonial by imperialists and colonialists uh, because fundamentally this game is going to sort of snap back to the point of view as Lara and by extension you the player have to fix this somehow and it is your problem to fix I mean even at the end of this game the the very last line that Dominguez gets is please Lara protect Paititi and that really kind of like that ending line it just it rang so hollow for me with the rest of everything that this game was trying to do and there's a draft of this review um an early discarded draft that I was really struck by the notion of National Geographic mm-hmm. as, and I kept I kept the line in about it, but 
earlier this year, um, you might remember with uh, National Geographic apologized for its racism over the years, mm-hmm. but they stopped. They, they basically said, we stopped being racist in the 1960s, but we're sorry about the racism before that. And okay, yes, you, you were, National Geographic was overtly racist and like very just, you know, just callous about it early on in for the like you know the beginning of like uh from what the like 1890s or whatever i don't remember when national geographic started um until the 1960s and then oh things shifted a little but my childhood growing up with national geographic was one it was one of the only places i saw brown people or got to like read about people beside my own family um it was this oh, look, we're taking these people and we're showing them to you and we're going to educate you about them from this complete outside viewpoint. It's, look, you know, the photos of of National Geographic photographers showing their camera to the Yanomami and people like that. And it's just like, you still haven't gotten it. And like even like recently, National Geographic, one of their examples of how they're trying to, you know... um, decolonize their 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 magazine is they went to haiti and they gave a bunch of cameras to haitians Mm -hmm. and they said document just go and shoot whatever you want and we're going to publish it well that's that's still this you know paternalistic colonial imperative that's just like look it's just it's the newer shiner shinier colonialism it's friendly it's look what we're doing for these people so that they can express themselves in our magazine that we make a lot of money and pay ourselves a lot you know to, to do and it's just like mm, but it's still a butterfly of, pinning a person in their culture in your collection and now you're just right. asking them to do it it's 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 still it is still collecting um and that's that's certainly something that this game really loves to do is collecting. Yeah, it's this is the other thing I was I was sort of thinking about this is um in your view I was struck by in a weird way your approval of sort of the earlier iterations of Lara Croft gleeful Tomb Raider uh killer and uh imperialist in a lot of ways. Uh you said at least it was more honest uh back then. And that this new version what what interested me here is that uh, okay, uh let me let me let me put this forward. This is this is me arguing I, I'm doing that devil's advocate thing and I fucking hate that in general, but uh I'm gonna do it anyway. This game attempts to address both the legacy of the series, but also the experiences the series has always been sort of based on and, and, and founded on. Uh, and it attempts to handle that more responsibly than the series has ever handled it in the past and more responsibly than a lot of games have in, in generally in general handled this stuff, right? It is attempting to be very culturally sensitive and aware yes. of its contexts and authentic uh, to the stories and settings it's it's utilizing. And in some ways, it comes across that somehow that has actually made this all worse, for, for you at least, in, in, in some way, that you have 
more brutal criticisms leveled against this game, it sounds like, than the earlier version, which is totally like Pith Helmet hacking through the brush and being like, where are your treasures? And I am, okay. I'm curious about that tension. So here's here's my thing. Um, the, like, OG Tomb Raider, which I still have a fondness for, it it opens with Lara Croft's... Well, first of all, it opens with a nuclear detonation in New Mexico that unearths this, you know, ancient relic... <laughs> And powers it, and then simultaneously unearths this um, person in suspended animation. And uh, yeah, spoilers for uh, 1996 Tomb Raider. Yeah, those those uh, are the spoilers people are going to get pissed at us about. Yeah, about they're going to get podcast. pissed because it's you know, and it's a great game. Um, and then like you jump to Lara Croft, and I think she's in like Nepal. She's in a bar somewhere, and this. Loud mouth texts and shows up, and he's just like, "Hey, Laura, I got a message for you from my employer," and it's just, it's just so comical. There's no way to take it seriously. There's no, like, no one is trying to sell you a message of anything other than this is a ridiculous jungle adventure. You know, it is, you know, so off the wall that. Yeah, there's 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 a politics in it and you know, we are rooting for the the raider of tombs of which she's an outsider and it is an expression of colonialism, sure. But it's also culminates in the Queen of Atlantis showing up. Mm-hmm. There and making Lara clones, and then there's fucking T Rexes and Atlantean centaurs. Like it is just completely bad shit. And so, looking at that, and then looking at the, we are trying to tell a message. We are trying to, you know, elevate this material, and that that does like that that bugs me so much more because people are going to look at that and come away with, you know, oh man, that was really deep and profound. Wow, they really. You know, I'm thinking so much more about colonialism right now. You know, it's it's the meme of what if Lara, you know, um, or what if what if the Tomb was taking the you know uh, the treasures from museums and returning them to their people? Well, it's it's still like you know that that's that's that is the current state of wokeness with regard to Tomb Raider and you know colonialism and games. Like um, going into this, you know, I deliberately did not talk about cultural appropriation because that's where people got to and stopped because that was where the discussion could be before. And, you know, it's like, okay, well we get the overwatch appropriation discussion. All right. We get, you know, Mm -hmm. but when people try and like, you know, really have their message and get their politics out there and have this, you know, big expansive, we're talking about themes and and subtext and blah 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 and then fuck up. I'm a little more critical of that than you know, the game that is very deliberately like, look, we don't like we're fucking white and we made a game about blowing up tombs because we liked Indiana Jones and what if Indiana Jones had big old titties? Like 
that is Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider is what if Indiana Jones had big old titties and was even less grounded in reality, to be honest. Like, you know, yeah, it's so it's it's yeah, like it 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 irks the shit out of me when um they they do it they try they try and then they fall just so flat and then i have to sit through as you know an indigenous person reading articles where you know games journalists suddenly decide that they understand about colonialism and like the experience of indigenous people and they're like isn't it so amazing that all of the people in Paititi speak not English if you'd click this one toggle and then ignore Lara only speaks English for this entire game. Mm-hmm. Lara does not utter a word in another language. Even in like Mexico, like she doesn't I was, like. I was struck she, by that. She, again, she, she can't even manage a perdón. Yeah. Like she's brushing past people. Like, <laughs> it was exactly the, that was the exact argument I, I, have, I have, like I said when I was like playing this, like, I, I was talking to my friend Gabby and like, it's just like Lara keeps pushing past people. And she says, excuse me, even though they're speaking in Spanish. Pardon like, me. Like, it's, pardon. Like, yeah, it's, it's basic. It's, it's elementary school Spanish. And Lara can't even manage that. But it was so graceless. That's where I was like, they know, you know what I mean? There's this part of me that's like, this is so like, Put it like hanging a lampshade on Lara as a character that I'm like, this was a choice. Like, the, the, like, but I don't know. It, it's subversion to no end, uh, perhaps as far as as far as the game as as a whole goes. Um, yeah, that's. I guess for me, part like part of my response though is that like. In the admittedly like extremely low standards of video game discourse and the, the types of themes that, that games tend to address, like we're having a conversation about this stuff because somebody made a game like this and they wanted to at least acknowledge this this larger context. I think the far better game is one that is explicitly about that 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 tension we described earlier it's it's between unaratu and and dominguez uh it is Mm -hmm. it is a game about sort of a battle of ideals between indigenous people and their different responses to uh colonialism but my perhaps self-justifying response to that is like but Lara Croft is a, is the game is the is the is the hero people know, and it's a point of entry into those conversations because we've had like twenty years to get used to the idea of like inhabiting Lara Croft as our point of view character, um, and at least this one has the decency to sort of show her up as a bit of a hollow edifice. Um, I don't know though. That's 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 even like even my ears right now. I'm like that's extremely rationalizing. But nevertheless, I mean, I mean, there is there, there, that is that's 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 the thing is that Tomb Raider it's that is the franchise. Lara Croft is the brand. Um, you know, even when we were rebooting Tomb Raider, we still had to keep Lara Croft around because otherwise, what are we rebooting? Yeah, you know, we had 
we had you know Indiana Jones and the Inf- was it Infernal Machine, yep. the, the Indiana Jones Tomb Raider. You know, we've got Nathan Jake and Uncharted, and we've got Uncharted: The Lost Legacy, and so like this. If if you're gonna do Tomb Raider, there there are now compa- competitors mm-hmm. to you know this genre in the space. So okay, we have to bring in Lara Croft. Then I don't know what we do then. Like, you know, it's this game was not explicit enough in its criticisms, and I don't think it carried them. It, it did not uh, stick the landing, Austin, <laughs> to borrow from Austin. Yeah. Um, but it also, like, it ripped apart in mid flight. <laughs> <laughs> like, there is so much where it's like, okay, I see where you're going. And then it's the cutscene with Jonah screaming and Lara screaming as their little prop jet is like ripped apart and crashes over at the Andes. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what a catastrophic failure gets us in terms of these discussions. I mean, it's great. You and I are having this discussion. I'm seeing, I'm watching my timeline. Everyone is like being like, holy shit. I didn't think about this with like my review um that's great uh but i kind of feel like in 2018 why why are why are we still having this just such 101 ground level conversation about is tomb raiding okay <laughs> like can 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 desecrating incan ruins ever be good and like that's really kind of the question that this game wants to get it is like is there ever a reason to blow up tombs and it's like maybe that's not the question like get over that question stop trying to self-justify this franchise and take the franchise in a direction that's actually meaningful well this is the thing like is this sort of this brand of wokeness uh that this game is peddling is this just the form that like hegemonic imperialism takes in 2018 where it's and this this is why kipling came to mind it's the new justification for doing all this shit right the this Mm -hmm. idea that okay yes we used to be bad the empires of old the the empires of old just explicitly wanted to loot people and take their treasure and enslave them and then the other empires just wanted to economically and politically control their destinies uh, and subsume them culturally into sort of a more cosmopolitan identity. We're past all of that. We're not imperialists. What we need to do is go around the world fixing our mistakes by making sure people in these like post-colonial identities get with the fucking program and do what we say uh, for their own good, for for the the protection of themselves and the redress of our poisonous colonial legacies. Like, is that what, is that, is that what this, this sort of brand of wokeness, is that what it's actually, is that the cargo it's carrying? Is it a Trojan horse for a new form of imperialism? I think so. I think this is, this is, you know, this is the, the, the vague escalation of Indiana Jones cry of it belongs in a museum, you know, like in, in the, the eighties, it belongs in a museum, man, that was pretty woke. Like, yeah, 
It doesn't belong in the hands of a private collector. It belongs in a museum. Well, okay. And then we realize, well, maybe museums are just kind of bastions of like hegemonic power over, you know, the, the, the people they've colonized. All right. Well, now it belongs in the people's hands that Lara has decided are the good people. And she has appointed herself as kind of not only the arbiter of that, but also the savior and protector of those people. Like, yeah, you, you got past the museum thing and you just you kind of just got into a whole different other, like, you know, field of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like, I don't know that this is a problem that's resolvable. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, or at least I don't know. I, I don't believe this is a problem that is resolvable at the AAA level. There's too much money riding on Tomb Raider. This game is expensive and it needs to move units. And that means it needs to be, it needs to hit the, the, the Lara beats and not alienate, you know, it's largely white male audience that wants to look at, you know, Camilla Luddington's mo-capped ass while climbing over ancient relics that are going to blow up spectacularly. <laughs> like, like, as woke as Tomb Raider wants to get, you know, I, 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 I was talking about this on Twitter, but like, when we rebooted Tomb Raider, there was a lot of talk about, oh, Laura's realistic now, and oh, look, it's, you know, this is, this is the new feminist Tomb Raider. And it was kind of like, no, we've traded in one hegemonic set of masturbatory ideals for another. We, you know, we moved from the 90s when, you know, silicon breast implants yeah. were all the rage. And now it's, you know, the live athletic 32B girl. Like, that's where Lara moved to. That's that's really the shift. Um, it's still kind of, it's still the same thing, though. It's still these, you know, hegemonic beauty standards. It's still collectathons in places where you're not supposed to be. It's still kill all the brown people. It's just throwing this veneer on it and saying, no, no, we're woke now. What does that conversation look like? Because I'm, I'm curious, like, or at least the, the, the tension of the conversation that, that should be happening in, in a game like this. Because, like, even the, um, you know, we referred to, like, the, the Magua, her in chief conversation, the Dominguez. Uh, sorry, I forget the queen's name. Because um, I've not actually Unaratu. Yeah, uh, the Dominguez Unaratu conversation, um, where it's still kind of in this. Well, in Last of the Mohicans, it's explicitly mid midstream of the arc of uh, the genocide of the Native Americans in uh, North America. Uh, that is that is not yet an accomplished fact. And so the conversation they have is very much about like, what is our path in the face of uh, this, this onrushing uh, disaster and crime uh, heading our way. And I'm curious, I'm intrigued by the fact that like Unaratu is sort of the, the queen of a hypothetical uncontacted uh, city, right? It is, it is a, uh, at least the way the way it sounds is it's sort of a pre-Columbian metropolis that has somehow escaped the disaster that overtook uh, indigenous people across the Americas. Um, but 
even that, like, is that necessarily um, the right conversation or the right framing to adopt? Because it is sort of resetting the conversation into a hypothetical, you know, 16th century setting, right? Like, what then are we to do uh, w- w- with our society in the face of this this changing world outside? Um I'm curious, is that a fair characterization or is there more happening here? No, I think that's a fair characterization. You know, one of um, the things that it kind of like blew my mind about this is that when you walk into Paititi, it is, it's every illustration of a, this is what Chichen Itza used to look like, probably looked like, you right. know, it's, it, it's, it's exactly the, the, Gatefolds like spread in National Geographic of we hired an artist to paint the world to bring to bring the pre-Columbian world to life, and it's weird because one, um, it's open air. Um, it's not you know it's not a hidden city inside like a cave. There's no forest canopy. It's just out in the open in fucking Peru. Um, Maybe that would have worked in like the the eighteen hundreds, the early nineteen hundreds. Maybe like you know, like the earliest twentieth century. But in the twenty first century, having a colossal, like open air metropolis with like megalithic architecture in the world of Google satellites that can like do like spot celebrity side boob from space. <laughs> And are constantly like photographing the whole world. It's absurd. Um, and so the whole hidden city thing, it really is. It's like we want to take it back to this, you know, 16th century. This is what these people look like. Um, when it's like, no, there are, there are, there aren't contacted peoples, and like, you know, and there are people with like low levels of contact that exist. They don't live in these, you know, metropolises. <laughs> They just, yeah. because you can't, you can't, you have to be able to pick up and move because Brazilian farmers are going to come in and murder you for like the forest that they want to farm on. Like that's the reality in the 21st century is if you are an uncontacted people, you are constantly on the move from the encroachment of the outside world. And you do not have, you know, giant stone pyramids that like you call home. You just don't. That's not the reality of the world. And so this framing, again, it's, it's a Laura fantasy. It's, I want to go and like walk along those, you know, terraced water gardens. And I want to see, you know, like what this temple looked like, what the actual like rituals of these people like in practice. And it's like, as they were before contact. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's like an extremely like colonialist as fuck fantasy. That this game, that was that that I mean that was the core of this game's marketing yeah. pitch, and even even like even like the developers, they were like, "We built this huge hub. It's so great. Y'all won't believe it. It's amazing. We got side stories, and you can help people, and blah blah." blah. It's like you 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 brought the National Geographic spread to life, and you didn't even think about why you were bringing the National Geographic spread to life and what that meant. It's Jurassic Park with people. Jeez. <laughs> Which, which... Hang on, I need to change our headline. (laughs) Just hop into the CMS right now. 
Because <laughs> no, uh, this is this is the other thing that struck me though is like to a degree that 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 debate of like you mentioned that like indigenous people still have these conversations of like do we work within the hegemonic systems of co- the colonial powers that are for for a lot of us our nominal governments uh, the people who control our, our our lives and bodies or do we resist and openly confront those systems um but the way this framing works it sounds like unarachi is this is sort of hypothesizing this this weird like again like nobody can nobody can articulate that like there's no one around to articulate the position of protecting and guarding a huge robust thriving pre-contact culture who's going who's going to be like offering the perspective of like well we can somehow just ignore we can somehow ignore and hide and 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 keep ourselves free of the taint of uh like colonial powers because that that's happened like everyone like indigenous people in one way or another across the board had to wrestle with that fact that happened um and so the conversation has moved on. We no longer like. There's no Magua and Huron chief having the debate about like, well, what should we do about addressing these newcomers? We're centuries past that. We are centuries and millions of dead past that. And the conversation is different now. And this game shrinks from even addressing those conversations exist. Yes. And I, I mean, it's even like, you know, Unaratu, when she's having, like, part of the reason why Dominguez is so, like, impressive is because his argument is so much stronger than Unaratu, the one that Unaratu is given. Unaratu's, the argument that she is allowed to have is, you know, shit happens. No one, no one really can say what, what's going to go on tomorrow. Like, it's, 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 she wants to just kind of reset the status quo. Yeah. You know, she's like, okay, the sun's going to, like, go out and everyone's going to die, or Dominguez is going to, like, remake the world. Well, if we just bring back the sun, we'll see. Yeah. And it's it's so frustrating, because it's like, that's not even really an argument. It's like, it's not a counter-argument to Dominguez. It's just kind of like, yeah, you know, nothing's really sure in this world. And it just feels so ignoring all of the conversations i mean there there have been indigenous sovereignty movements you know long before i was born like active political movements in america in canada south america africa like you know everywhere that colonization has happened there have been these discussions for decades if not centuries and the best this game can muster is eh, shit happens. And it's just, it's very fangless. And it's one of those things where it's like, really, this is, this is where you're at. You're, you're the big white woke colonialist game. And the best you can muster is in the face of, you know, outside, you know, incursion. eh, Shit happens. There, there's a weird element too of like again that paternalist um, angle of 
no, no, we must protect your culture from the stain of colonial hegemonic power, right? Uh, of like, yeah. um, no, we can we can go back. It's kind of like we can go back and we can fix this, right? Like, no, no, no. Your your, your wonderful culture and and society that we told that. Okay, yes, we obliterated effectively. You know, two three hundred years ago. Um, it is very important you still hold to those ideals and not change because we want to put that, we want to encase that under glass. Uh, we see the value in it now. And it feels a bit like Paititi gives that, like gives that, brings that fantasy to life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I 100% does. Um, I was just thinking one of the, one of the weird moments that comes along with this game is, um, uh, immersive language option are on or off. It doesn't matter. Um, Unuratu, uh, her son, her advisor, uh, they speak English. The principal characters in Paititi all speak English fluently with Laura. <laughs> um, School but there's a scene, there's a scene at the end, um, at the very end, where Laura decides she's going to stay and help rebuild and kind of you know like yeah Paititi's great and it's it's a, it's a wonderful you know Incan paradise but you know there's some things that like you know need some sprucing up and there's some I guess there's some more relics that are hidden that like Lara needs to bring back to the people um and so she decides to stay and the the young Unaratu's young son the the new king of Paititi, um, he becomes fascinated by the outside world, and he's like, "I can't wait to learn more about it and maybe see it myself someday." Is his is that's where he ends, mm-hmm. and it's just one of those moments where you're just like, "Okay, you got to the end of this, and your best thought was, well." The, the natural conclusion is that they come into the 20th, the 21st century. They join the rest of the world in some small ways. And it's just kind of like, fuck you game. Like I got to that scene and I was just like, are you, are you, are you kidding me? You're making contact with the outside world seem like a great thing. And that's something to aspire towards. And history has shown us it's just fucking not. Like, contact with the outside world, you either get diseases you don't have any immunities to, or you get murdered. Or people say, oh, you got shit over there that we haven't known about? Okay, we're going to take that. Like, those are the three outcomes. Yeah. There is no beneficial outcome to indigenous people that are previously uncontacted making contact with the outside world. None. Like, and this is where the game ends up. And it's like, okay. So even in this most like fabulous version of South America and uncontacted societies, even the most like fantastical version of that, it still lands in this deeply disappointing like, ah, but our, our cultures have so much to learn from each other. We must, we, we, we must cross pollinate. I mean, a hundred percent. Really, no. Like, not even. It's 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 these people are so pure and good. And we're speaking to the people of Paititi that they need to be kept, you know, safe. But also, 
we have so much that we can offer them like gasoline and <laughs> trucks. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the, what the outside world is supposed to be offering MTV. Um, yeah. I, Mineral you know, rights and leasing like, of them. <laughs> like seriously, like it's just like, Oh my yeah, God. Yeah. Well, that is, uh, you know, there's, there's more I wanted to talk about, but like we're, we're, we're running, uh, long on time. Um, but I was, I was also just really struck. Like, I love this review so much because also I think it has some of the smartest comments about like the complications of a mixed stealth action, uh, you know, combat environment, tactical environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I was sort of impressed by is this idea that, um, I don't know, it's, you, you sort of framed it as a, as a bad thing. And I, and I kind of get it have, having played a little bit of the game and probably it'll get older uh, as, as I play more of it. But I kind of like this idea, at least, that uh, this is a game where, Lara never feels particularly accomplished as like a pure uh like stand-up fight murder machine. Like when she's like in a gun battle, she's a little like awkward and slow and 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 clunky and I kind of was surprised by the by the way this game sort of did feel like um it's it's trying to carve out an identity for Lara as an action hero that is not simply the Nathan Drake like bullet sponge terminator uh model uh that was that was a thing that i was sort of excited by uh reading review but in a we- in a weird way like the more you the more your review was like yeah i don't know the combat feels awkward and not so great and laura never feels like this is really comfortable i was like hell yeah that sounds that sounds awesome that's that's the tomb raider game i want to play uh but then playing it in reality it does sort of seem like the entire game is kind of Poface about a lot of the things that's, that are that it means to be fun, but it feels kind of weirdly inhibited about making yeah. them fun. It's it's a weird thing. Like a lot of the action in this game feels ponderous in, in a weird way, in ways good and bad. Right? Yeah. No. Exactly. Um, no, and it's funny because like when I was writing that section, um, I, I thought that was good. Like I thought that was, you know, like intellectually, I'm like, yeah, Laura is not a soldier. But she is a killer. She has definitely become very comfortable with killing. She's just not that great at, like, you know, soldiering. She's not a warrior. Um, So she does. She has to, you know, put her skill sets that she has, you know, basically just her agility and her comfort with the dark um, (laughs) to use. Um, So, you know... She, you know, you get the ingenuity, you know, ingenuity and, you know, like plays into the stealth mechanics and that's great. And I think on paper, like talking to you, it's a great idea. Um, in practice, it gets fucking tiring. Um, it's like you get to the point where it's just like, okay, you know, stealth has been broken for the 300th time because for some reason that dude at the far end of the sugarcane field has like, you know, 160 power scope 
And even though he's facing backwards, he's seeing me in the reflection of like the gold cross on this church. And he sees me pulling this guy into the cane field to stab to death. And now everyone's on high alert. Yeah. Like some of the perception later in the game is just like, you did not see me. How did you possibly see me? And now I have to do combat. And then the arena is just too small to ever properly get back into like stealth. Um, you know, you don't have the, the, the Metal Gear Solid uh, benefit of, well, I can just crawl into this air duct yeah. and <laughs> for, for, for five minutes and wait. Once out. you break stealth, you have to win the encounter and get to wherever the next, wherever the game determines that next break is, is in the encounter space. Right. And, and there are times when you can, you can re-enter stealth at times, but a lot of the arenas are just too small. Like the combat is very, it's very modular and it's just like, okay, here's, here's your little combat puzzle. Um, there are these five dudes, these are the routes they're patrolling, get through this, um, which would work great. Like stealth as puzzle game is something I'm like totally into, but you know, the, the, the design of, you know, the enemy AI and like how Lara, you know, seems to have a hit box that just announces its presence with like giant exclamation marks. Um, it doesn't it's the, the puzzliness of it falls apart and when you get into open combat it's just like okay yeah you know what you are Lara you are ponderous and you don't know what you're doing in this and that is it's accurate to the character but you know if we could take liberties with like you know pre-columbian cultures i think we can take a little bit of liberties with the combat and like let lara like you know actually like lean out behind cover or like you know have grenades that aren't just like oh here i happen to be near a bottle it's gonna take me 30 seconds to turn this into a molotov cocktail uh but i'm out of oil and cloth so i can't so even though there's a body right next to me that's just covered in pineapples well we're screwed God, there's, yeah, there's a lot of... This game sure does love its crafting uh, systems. But last, last thing I wanted to get to before we, uh, before we leave off here is you mentioned in your review, and I've heard you talk about this with uh, the Red Dead 2 uh, trailer, there are games that look expensive, and we often mistake them for being beautiful. But they're two different things. And it sounds like for you, Shadow of the Tomb Raider falls into the it's expensive it ain't beautiful category. And I'm curious what that distinction is for you. And why does shadow of the tomb Raider run afoul of it? You know, I think, um, I'm not entirely like, you know, it is, it's the, I know it when I see it kind of thing in some ways. Um, but when I go into shadow of the tomb Raider, and I, you know, first emerge into no. When I first when I first go to Cozumel, and you know, I'm walking around, and there's just all of these, you know, brown people all dressed up for Dia de los Muertos, and you know, some of them they have like you know slightly more complex animations than others, but there's just lots of them, and it's it it was really fortunate that like the timing of you know Natalie's discussion on I guess it was the last yeah. episode of Waypoint Radio. Um, where she kind of tackles, you know, this and the, the seeing people's pores is not beautiful, but like seeing a black girl's hair actually animate the way it should 
is. And like, that's kind of what like, you know, um, there's like, there's one very kind of obvious Afro Latino character in, or NPC in Cozumel. Um, and you'll notice him because he's been copy pasted all over the damn map. Um, he just has a different shirt. Sometimes he's wearing his mask. Sometimes he's not, but it's the exact same dude. And I'm just kind of like, you know, like there's a level of attention to like, you know, these leaves look great and the light shines on them. And there's kind of this painterly effect. Um, and, uh, Oh, look at how vibrant. And we set up this shot where there's people and they're praying and in front of an ofrenda and like, it feels so forced. It feels like a Michael Bay movie or really it feels like a National Geographic photograph. It's it's everything feels so static and set and it's just designed for this is for your pleasure. This is designed to appeal to you. And this is designed to be consumed, not to be experienced or engaged with or really like thought about. And even like I mean I spent uh, I had a 13-hour playtime, I think, by the time I was done. I did, like, 75% of the game, according to my play clock. Um, I think I beat the game in, like, nine hours. So the rest of that time was just me taking photographs. And the more I photographed, the more I'm just kind of like, uh-huh, like, this is a good photograph. This is this is a technically well-framed shot. Um, you know, I, I, I have a good composition. I've, you know, got the lighting right. Um, everything here is perfect, but it feels like just dead. And I think that's the difference between looking expensive to me and looking beautiful is that there needs to be some sense of vitality and purpose beyond just there to be dazzling. Um, yeah, I, you brought up like The Witcher Three and like <laughs> how us console gamers have, have have robbed you of your your beautiful your beautiful graphics. Um, you just stole my reflection. But when I the Witcher, that's all. When I when I yeah when I played The Witcher Three, like I was just like I was like you know, like when I first got it, I was kind of like well, everyone made up like they talked about this game and like they were like oh it's so impressive and I realized that I was approaching it as oh, I'm approaching this as what I expect a AAA game to look like. I expect it to look super photorealistic and super, you know, um, high resolution and overly textured and everything just, you know, just blown out. And it ends up being this kind of, you know, uh, impressionistic, very painterly world. Um, You know, The Witcher 3 looks more like a fairy tale than it does a triple A game in a lot of ways. And like, I would say like that, I mean, that's, it's expensive, but it's also, it's, it, it is beautiful. There is a beauty in the Witcher three's world that, um, I mean, even then, like though they're, and the incidental NPCs are still kind of yeah. static and just kind of wandering on their little paths. Um, just the world itself visually comes alive in a way that the super aggressive photorealism of Lar- of shadow of the tomb Raider it doesn't. It's I couldn't put my finger on why the sequence in the graveyard uh, at the start of the game bothered me, and I think you articulated it perfectly. Like 
the town is dead. There is no life in that town. People don't live there. It's a diorama mm-hmm. for you to see how these yeah. people live or the idea of how they live. Not that they're actually living in there. They're just going through like ostentatiously recognizable like rituals and traditions for your benefit. Yeah, and that's and that's you know one of the things um, I don't actually remember if I put it in the review or not, but um, it might have gotten cut. But what is the point of Dia de los Muertos in this game? Um, there's either okay, so we either have like the kind of joke that it's El Dia de los Muertos because all of these people are going to die by the end of this mm-hmm. act, um, or it's this is how we sell Mexico. Yeah. Like, those are your options. And, like, both suck. <laughs> There's no, like, you know. And, like, yeah, they get all the pieces right, you know? Like, they've got, like, the ofrendas and they've got, like, the marigolds everywhere. And it's just like, yeah, you know what? Like, we had two, like, we had a Pixar movie and a Dreamcast movie that both nailed this, like, three years ago. <laughs> Come on. Like, you got to do better. At least those were, I could think, at least made by Mexicans. At least one was. But, um, you know, like, it's just, I get it. I get it. It's, it's colorful. It's vivacious. You know, the, the Mexican government has, you know, spent a long time and a lot of money and effort, like, popularizing this as part of the national identity and for tourism and other purposes. My family never celebrated, like, by the way. <laughs> like my parents, yeah, my it's like it's like, like, when it, like, oh my god! If I if any of us had shown up wearing like the Adelos Muertos uh, masks, my grandparents would have been like, "Right, what the fuck." <laughs> this was never a thing. Like it was just kind of like, yeah, that's a thing that happens, but no one really does it. Like y'all, um, come to Cozumel, buy our calaveras, and like you know, give us your American dollars. Yeah, you know, like I definitely, I definitely like made like pan de muerto and sugar skulls and sold them to white people growing up for large amounts of money. That's how I got a Nintendo and Final Fantasy one. Um, <laughs> but, but no, like it's just shorthand, and like so much of this game is just shorthand, and like that sucks. <laughs> um, like, no, go on. Like, do you do better than Overwatch. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but like, I'm gonna pick on Blizzard here. Do better than Overwatch. If you're gonna like try and sell Mexico as like you know a real culture, um, <clears throat> you, you got to give me more than the Dia de los Muertos like set design and the one the one drunk dude sitting on the trash cans or trash yeah. bags. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you run into him? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't great. Also, I really one thing I really do love is the comfort level of everyone in the the the, the town in Cozumel's um like their level of comfort with dudes walking with around guns. strapped with machine guns to their backs. Yeah. Which like okay, I know those dudes have to be there, but like I'm like mm, you didn't think about the message this sends did you Idas Montreal. Yeah, there's dudes just like blocking off part of their festival with like Kalashnikovs and they're just dudes just like militia yeah, yeah. um all right i think that will uh that will do it for this discussion um god there, there was so much to dig into with this game I'll, uh, i i'm restraining myself from talking about the weirdly detailed rocks uh in, in this game and <laughs> just <laughs> oh we didn't even, we didn't even get into the weird like 
Dan Brown bullshit towards like, especially the latter half of the game where um, you're on the quest for the, uh, the Spanish monk. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, you've got a lot to look forward to, Rob. I um, suspect this might, this game might I might play a little bit more, and it might end up uh, being a game that I will I tell myself I will return to someday, uh, <laughs> and then slowly, like inevitably, delete it to make room for something else. Yeah, as soon as I as soon as Austin was like, "No, we're good. We got all the art." I'm just like, "Bye." You got those photos though. They went away. Yeah, which will be on Twitter because I took fucking 900 of them i'm not even joking all right uh well thanks for listening to this you can read uh dia's essay at waypoint.vice.com as well as everything else we write our thanks as always to bowen for his track miss you off the ep pale machine you can follow me on twitter at rob zachney dia where can people find you you can find me at dia lacina on twitter and we'll be back soon for waypoint radio until then for dia i'm rob zachney wishing you I always have something thematic to say, but I like anything thematic I say about this game is going to be problematic as fuck. <laughs> I think, I think, I think that that's probably the best thing you could say. Perfect. <laughs> wishing you, wishing you a farewell and greetings of your choosing. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.